Hallelujah, sweet presence of God in this place right now. Amen. Everyone smile. It's great to see everyone tonight. Why don't you walk around and greet one another. Say hi. Amen. There should be beginning to be a handout that's going to come around. So we started last week. Um, diving into Micah chapter 6, and um, we did part 1, and I'll recap that in a minute. So tonight we're going to do part 2, and we titled this two-week series, if you want to call it that, Court is in Session. Court is in Session. So um, now that you're comfortable, if you could stand for the word, and Go to Micah 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8, very familiar passage. When you're there, say amen. It says, uh, starting in verse 1, Hear ye now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee, the Lord speaking, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Verse 4, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, 
king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Shittim until Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Verse 6, wherewith shall I come before the Lord? This is the um, response from Israel. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand, with thousands of rams or with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here's the verse we're going to lock into tonight. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. This is Micah speaking uh, right now for God. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? If you want to set your Bibles down, ask the Lord to bless this time that we have together. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this time. We ask that you bless your word, God, and that it would go forth and change and transform us in Jesus' name. And the church says, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Everyone's got a handout? All right. So last week we, um, we read Micah 6, and we suggested that this chapter unfolds like a, a modern-day court proceeding. And the events leading up to this case are as follows. Israel has not been faithful. They have fallen into this pattern of doing whatever they want to do, and when they're in trouble, and, it, and trouble reels its ugly head, they come running back to God to save them. And Assyria now has invaded Israel, and Israel has come running back to God for protection. And God has had enough of Israel's uh, back-and-forth behavior and decides to confront them. So in Micah 6, verses 1 through 5, God, acting as the prosecuting attorney and judge, opens the proceedings by asking Israel, who obviously is the defendant here, what has he done to offend them? He reminds them that he has always been there for them, and he builds this case by stating that they're short-sighted, and to remember the goodness and faithfulness of God, but they have forgotten that. And he presents his evidence by listing four landmark events in their history that prove that he is faithful and that he is good. On your worksheets, number one, he rescued them from the bondage of Israel. Number two, he provided godly leadership to the promised land. Number three, he protected them from enemies that would seek to curse Israel. And number four, finally, God himself guided them through the wilderness into the land of milk and honey. And so it's at the end of verse five that God rests his case. And he allows Israel to defend their position. Israel interestingly enough, not only defends her position, but points the finger back to God and goes on the offensive. 
which is never a good thing. So let's look at what happens in verses 6 through 7. We just read it. I'll read it again. Wherewith shall, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So even after God has given this litany of reasons why they should repent and turn back to him, the arrogance, literally the arrogance of Israel, presents this charge against God. And their response is to try and establish a price that will win God's favor by raising the bid a little bit each time as they say it in verses 6 through 7. Burnt offerings and year-old calves represented very expensive offerings. And unlike other sacrifices where part of the meat was returned to the worshiper, there was no returning any meat to the worshipers here in this particular burnt offering. They got nothing from it. And since the calves could be offered any time after they were seven days old, a year-old calf represented a substantial investment in feed and work. They're building this case to say, we're going to do this sacrifice, and we're going to do this sacrifice, and this sacrifice, and then, God, you can kind of forget about what we've done in the past. Okay? Thousands of rams would be a sacrifice equivalent with Solomon's dedication of the temple. And this was a quite extravagant sacrifice. And then finally, the most precious sacrifice of all, reminiscent of Abraham's offering of Isaac, they offer their firstborn as a sacrifice, the fruit of their body for the sin of their soul. And so you have them, they didn't do that, but this is what they're saying. Is this what we need to do? Is this what, because this should cover it, God. But here's the problem. And I'm going to ask Sister Katie to put the first. That's a beautiful home, is it not? On the outside, that is a beautiful home. You guys like to live in that home, right? You wouldn't. All right. So let me show you the inside of it. If you want to put... A little bit. So here's what's happening. This is why I'm showing you this. This is what's happening. Israel is saying, I'm going to do all this stuff on the outside when God's saying, I need the inside fix. That's what's the disaster. Right? Outwardly, all of this appears very spiritual as they bow before the Lord and they're going to make these offerings and these sacrifices, but all they're trying to do is to hide their wicked heart. They seem to believe that their transgression and sin could be completely covered by the ritual of sacrifice without any appropriate adjustment in behavior on your worksheets. In other words, they wanted God's mercy, and they would pay any price to get it as long 
is they didn't have to change their ways. What has God done to them? How has he burdened them? This is their answer on your worksheet. He demands too much of them. That was Israel's response. You demand too much, or God demands too much from them. And this is always the way simple flesh approaches God. The basic idea here is that God will have to change because I've done nothing wrong. After all, look at all these extravagant sacrifices that I'm making on your worksheet. It's almost as if they think that God can be bribed. Almost as if they think, I, I, how many times do we, ah. the incredible extravagance of their offerings is not evidence of their deep love for God, but rather a way of showing that God is placing impossible demands on their lives. They are saying, look how much we're willing to do and you also want me to change too? They were willing on your worksheet to give gifts, but not themselves. They offered more than what was required, thinking that if one sacrifice covered one sin, then a thousand rams would surely cover all their wrongdoings. And I think this was quite the insult to the goodness of God. They are blind to the grace of God that had sustained them thus far. Further, they are blind to the mercy of God that is giving, that is giving them a chance to repent. So we come to the last part, which is where Micah responds to Israel. And Micah says in verse 8, speaking to them, He has showed thee, O man, what is good? And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Y'all, very popular verse of Scripture. So I'm going to break it down a little bit here because there's some really interesting stuff in here. So he says, he has showed, in Hebrew, that's negad. He has showed in uh, you, O man, what is good. So Nagad, the Hebrew meaning of Nagad is, it means it's a declaration, it's a proclamation, it is, um, it's an announcement, it's to inform, okay? So he has showed, he has Nagad, you, O man, what is good. He has showed you, he has proclaimed to you what is good. Then he gets to, oh, my, oh, man. Now, man in Hebrew is Adam, and we know what that sounds like. Adam. So why would he say that? Why would that get included in there? Well, some of the uh, 
Jewish teachers say that the reason that's in there is to put emphasis on the proclamation that is being made. What Micah is saying is, is he's saying, God has proclaimed this. Now, when we think of Adam, we think of Garden of Eden, Genesis. It's a time thing. It's the beginning. And so the emphasis here that's being made is God has proclaimed what he requires all the way back from the very beginning. He has told you exactly what he requires. And so he goes into this um, showing the longevity of how long this has been made public. And so if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, he, he, this is not something that's been hidden from the people. God, God has told them over and over and over again what he requires. And this is what Mike is saying. I don't... It's kind of like saying, I don't know what you don't get. This has been said over through the centuries. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, it says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day, for thy good. By the way, this isn't telling us how to be redeemed, but how to live the redeemed life in harmony with God after we've been redeemed. So in Deuteronomy, God is telling Moses to communicate to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 10 just what the Lord demands of his people. To go back to the timeline, Moses the communication uh, that Moses made was in 1450 B.C. Micah lived around 740 B.C. So that's 700 years ago. And Micah really wants to put this emphasis in place because Israel's been going back and forth. They're, they're serving God, and all of a sudden they're backsliding, and they're serving God. And they're like, what do you want us to do, God? I told you 700 years ago exactly what the Lord required. So God makes this proclamation in Deuteronomy. And he says you must revere him, walk in his paths, love him, serve him, and keep or obey the commandments and the laws. It's interesting here that in Deuteronomy, love is not the only demand. Um, earlier in Deuteronomy and later in the New Testament, we'll be told that the, uh, that the law can be summed up by the love of the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength. The problem with that is we can determine what love looks like. Like I could say, Jim, you know, there's a certain, I won't put you on the spot, there's a certain level of love that you have for your wife, which may be certain than the level of love that you have for your wife, which may be different. In other words, God doesn't want to leave it up to you to decide what that level of love is. So that's why he includes, you have to revere him, you have to walk in his paths, you have to serve him. And so the bottom line is, is when you put it all together, God is saying, you love me by obeying me, by obeying the commandments that I put before you, by obeying what I require of you. And that's exactly what he's saying. If you go a little bit further on in Leviticus 19 and 15, it says, you shall do no injustice 
in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. In verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And then Solomon understood this when he wrote in Proverbs 21 and 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. God cares more about righteousness and justice than your sacrifices. David understood it in Psalm 37. He said, I have been young, right, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. And Micah wasn't the only one at his time that he was writing. He wasn't the only prophet that was prophesying at that time. There was Isaiah, there was Hosea, and there was Amos. And guess what? They were all saying the same thing to Israel. In Isaiah 1 and 17, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. In Hosea 6 and 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Amos 5 and 15, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So this thing with Micah 6 and 8, this isn't new theology. This isn't something that Micah is just rolling out. This has been around for a long time, and the Hebrew people knew it. They just decided not to pay any attention to it. So, and I, it, it's kind of like parents that, how many times do you tell your kid not to do something? And they just keep doing it. I told you not to do it, and then they do it. I told you not to do it, but they keep doing it. It's that kind of thing. Micah is saying, look, I have told you over and over. You've heard it all, all the way back in, in Hebrew history. This is how the Lord wants you to live your life. This is what he requires. It says, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. That word good is tav in Hebrews, and it's used in Genesis, right? Genesis 1 and 4, when God saw the light and he said it was good, it was tav. It means... Um, that it is um, something that truly pleases God, and, and, and it's good. And, and so this is exactly what he's saying in this verse. He has showed the old man what is good. Israel <clears throat> tried to offer all these sacrifices to get back into God's good graces. Micah's not saying that sacrifice doesn't matter. What he's saying is that sacrifice alone is not enough on your worksheets. It must be accompanied by obedience. It is not enough to give offerings to God. You must live a, on your worksheet, changed life. 
And so the prophet tells Israel in this last section exactly what it is that God requires. He says, first, do justly. Do what is right. The word do is asa in Hebrew, and it means to exert power for bringing anything to a desired state or to completion or to bring anything to pass. And what God is saying is what you want to do is ignore your actions and emphasize your offerings. But I'm telling you that it's not the offerings that matter, it's what you do that matters. Act right, do what is just. To be just is a call to action. Not to be silent or complacent when others, especially the vulnerable and those that have been abused and mistreated and in need are scorned and exploited. This has both a uh, negative connotation and a positive one. The not to do certain things and a command to do certain things. First of all, it prohibits bribery and theft and oppression and perjury and dishonesty, but it requires you to love your neighbors as yourself, to be socially responsible, to contribute to the welfare of others and to help those in need. Do justly to strengthen those that are weak and to be a blessing to others. I think we do that very well here at Living Word Church. I think when people have needs, we reach out. We do the right thing. We get together with people. We talk with them. The pastor and bishop have sat and counseled people. They take the time for those people that are in tough situations, marriages that are falling apart, kids that have backslidden. They sit down and then they talk. We, I think we do a really good job of that here. So what we are to do is to exert power to bring something to pass. And what is that? To be justly. We're not to be complacent. We're not to just roll with the punches. We're to do the right thing. What this says. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we preach. We got the truth. We do the right thing. You have to hold yourself accountable to do God's standards and commands. One commentator wrote, if you want to start someplace, start with Luke 4 and 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery to the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Do the right thing. Love mercy is the second thing, and this is a familiar command, to love like you have been loved. That is, when I typed that down there, I thought, wow, that's so powerful, to love like you have been loved, not by anybody in here, to love like God has loved you. I'll bet you you could probably think of all these different reasons why God could have just walked away. Things that you had done in your life. But he loved you so much. They reached out for you and he didn't give up on you. Even when you wanted to walk away. To love 
like you have been loved. That puts love in a whole different context. That's like, right? It's bigger than me loving my dog. To love like you have been loved. God has been merciful to you. Therefore, you should love mercy in everything you do. It's interesting that the word that's used for love there doesn't reflect a feeling, but an action. I never saw that before. It's an action. Mercy obviously means kindness and extending favor to the lowly. Love is supposed to do something. It's supposed to reach for something. It's supposed to extend for something. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant, rude, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The love for God propels us to do things. It's action, right? It covers my sins. It makes up for my shortcomings. It lifts me up when I am down. My love and your love should also do something. Much like faith, love is expressed in action. So God says, love mercy. Mercy is defined, best defined as not getting what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. Whereas grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we do not deserve. We live in a world that holds fast to the idea of guilty until proven innocent. Can I get an amen? We take the seat of a judge when our love for mercy should compel us to be the hands and feet of Christ. We demonstrate our love in our mercy. We all want mercy, right? When we've messed up, we want to have someone that's going to extend mercy. And God simply requires of us that we should treat others the same way we would want to be treated. 2,500 years after Micah wrote that God required mercy from his people, John wrote in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not, love God, does not know God, for God is love. Love mercy. The last thing is to walk humbly, with your God. The Hebrews had drifted away from God and had become very self-centered and self-serving. And so Micah calls them to humility. He says, be humble. It means lowly, modest, submissive. Submit yourself to God. All your sacrifices are fine, but when you're finished at the altar, God says, come and walk with me. And when you walk with me, walk humbly. Walk humbly. 
We are called to do the same thing, and that is to walk with God. There's an old hymn. I had never heard of this before. You ever heard? It's an old hymn called Trust and Obey. Really? Like you all know this? Okay. Now I don't feel so special. <laughs> that was kind of cool. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. You guys didn't think I was going to sing this, did you? No, 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 no. I don't even know how it goes. I, I'm just going to say it. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, for the glory he sheds on our way, while we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. It's all about obeying. It's about trusting him, obeying, and walking humbly under his guidance. Paul emphasized this idea of humbly walking with the Lord in Ephesians, like a lot in Ephesians. Ephesians 2 and 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4 and 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Ephesians 4 and 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Ephesians 5 and 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And Ephesians 5 and 8, for ye were sometimes in darkness, but now you are, now ye light and but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And this is really, this is the linchpin of everything that we do, is right here, as Paul has said it. To walk humbly with God is the basis for loving mercy and doing justice. I'm going to say that again. To walk humbly with God is the basis, it's the foundation, it's the cornerstone for loving mercy and doing justice. Walking humbly with God. Cultivating our walk with God provides the power and passion for us to fully engage in loving mercy and doing justice. Our walk grounds everything that we do. So let me close with this. Micah's threefold description of what God requires is not meant to be taken as three separate things. It's not a checklist of things that God prefers over sacrifice. It represents the way, capital W, capital A, capital Y, the way, all ties right back to Jesus and how he lived his life, the way. It is the core of who we are and how we act. And the bottom line is your relationship with God is reflected in how you live, how you love, and how you walk. I think that that's pretty powerful. Your relationship with God, how you interact with him every day, how you interact with others, how you witness, how you pray for it's all grounded in how you live how you love, and how you walk. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. What God was saying through his prophet is simply this. Your sacrifices are fine. 
Your service and ministry is good. Your works certainly don't go unnoticed. There's nothing wrong with a Martha lifestyle. But what I want more than anything else is your heart. It's the Mary attitude that sets everything else aside in order to be in my presence. Jesus told Martha, after Mary decided to sit at his feet instead of work, but the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details, and there is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. She did the good thing. Another version says it was a good thing. There's that word tav again. It was a good thing. It was precious to the Lord, and that's what he wants from us. When you add it all up, this passage is all about character. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, oh, you can do this Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Oh, you just have to do this on Wednesdays and Sundays. Now, this is a requirement. This is what God requires of us. So keep your hands busy doing justly. Keep your heart broken, loving mercy, and keep your head bowed, walking humbly. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, God, that you have visited us tonight. God, we live in a world that just tries to stir up all the different standards that people feel like that this is how they have to live, and this is what I have to do, and, and this is how I need to treat others. But God, your word clearly solidifies what you require of us how we should live our life, how we should treat others. And so, God, I'm asking, God, for each person that's in the sound of my voice, God, that you would bear upon them the idea to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We thank you for this time, Lord. We give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church says, amen. You are dismissed.